Well, I don't know about you, but I feel like giving at this moment, especially at this moment, is sacred. And I hope you join me in doing that too. Well, I also wanna welcome everybody today from every one of our physical campuses to our folks at, in our Midlothian campus. <laughs> Wait, you, you think this is a recorded message? You're asking, hey Brian, how can you welcome people from physical campuses when there are no physical campuses? I'll tell you how. Just because we aren't in the same place does not mean we're not a part of the same community. Just because we aren't physically gathered under the same roof does not mean we don't share the same neighborhoods, see each other at the same grocery stores, bare as they are. We don't, just because we're not gathered together doesn't mean we don't breathe the same fresh spring air in the same streets where we walk just to keep our sanity. No, we're not under the same roof, but we still worship the same God. We don't share the same space, but we do serve the same Savior. So welcome. Welcome to our folks in Midlothian who used to meet in a school and now anticipate a permanent location that we are still going to find a way to build. And welcome to our family at the Nottaway Correctional Facility who no longer are allowed to gather together but hear us broadcast every week throughout that prison. Welcome to our folks in Aylet who got robbed of their inaugural Sunday as a physical campus but will not be denied a fitting launch when this crisis is behind us. Welcome to our folks in Farmville who finally got a place to gather under a brand new atrium the exact moment we were no longer allowed to gather in it. And welcome to our folks at Riverside, a potent group of singing people who used to raise the roof in Fork Union, but now whose voices rattle all of Buckingham and Fluvanna counties from their homes. Welcome to our folks who used to gather at New Chester Church to be a part of PCC every week. But now, they're gonna take their passion and share it with the entire state of Wisconsin, one online share at a time. And welcome to all of our folks in Amelia, who are wishing right about now that they had the opportunity today to get up before the sun and transform a high school into a church, because working hard is a signature for that community. And welcome to our folks in Powhatan, who occasionally we used to grumble for the long lines and we had to get into the parking lot and circling around to find a parking place and now we wish we could do that again. But we're all together now. We're all together online. So to the folks who've always been faithful parts of PCC, from Pennsylvania and Florida and Colorado and Maryland and all over Virginia, to our folks in Ecuador and Tanzania and Portugal and all over the world, well, we're in your campus now. So thanks for welcoming the rest of us. See, we always said that church wasn't a building. Church was always a people, it was always a movement, it was always a kinetic force mobilized to change the world. It was never a place on a map or an hour on the calendar. So one good thing that has emerged from this crisis is our privilege to prove this point that church did not stop with coronavirus. It just got stronger. It wasn't held back, it reached farther. We weren't suppressed, we were unleashed. When Jesus told Peter that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church, he meant every word. We're still here, we're still moving, we're still on mission, but we're also still in a little state of shock, right? I mean, isn't it amazing how fast the world can change? We've all said things like, oh, life just moves so fast. And we believed it to the extent we thought we knew it, but we didn't really. We didn't appreciate the velocity of a virus. We didn't understand the pace of a pandemic. 
that we didn't see how fast a rocketing economy could be brought to a rapid halt. It feels like we've all been in a virtual high-speed car wreck or, or maybe on a farm in the Midwest on a perfect day when a tornado suddenly, without warning, descends from the sky and wipes out everything. 14 days ago, we were blissful. Most of us, including me, I was planning. I was planning for Easter. I was excited about the launch of our ALIT campus, and, and I had been able to work it out so that I could actually be there on launch Sunday. And my family was planning a celebration party for our first birthday for our first grandchild. Most of you were doing something like that, too. I asked you, as I sometimes do, to help me as I prepared for today, what I call a message help question. I threw out there on social media, and I, I asked some question like, what were you doing or planning for 14 days ago? Kids? You were planning to go to school. Now, for some of you, that was a good thing, and for some of you, it wasn't so much of a good thing, but you were planning to go to school. And we were planning celebration parties, like graduations and birthdays and milestones. You were planning cruises and vacations and getaways and anniversary trips. Many of us were planning to overcome the next hurdle of our fitness plan, alongside of fellow runners and weightlifters. And then all the gyms shut down, and all we have to do now is sit at home and eat. I told my wife, Susan, this past week, when, you know, when this is all over, I'm going to be twice the man that I am today. Yeah, she didn't think that was funny either. And 14 days ago, you were looking forward to big sporting events like the Masters and March Madness and the Olympics, or more personal sports like baseball, softball, and soccer. You were planning to finish your semester well. You were thinking that this would be the best and most profitable year in your business. You were planning your wedding and baby shower. You were planning to watch your sons and daughters parade across that platform in a funny hat and get a piece of paper that symbolized a major achievement. Some of you were planning family visits with people you love who live thousands of miles away. The list went on and on. Literally hundreds of people responded to my question with things that you were thinking about and planning to do two weeks ago, almost none of which will happen, at least not now. Maybe not ever. We had no idea how fast things could change. But we are not the first pe uh, people in the world to ever be jolted by this reality. So I'm asking you, step back with me. Come with me to a moment similar to this one, but it happened a long time ago. I'm asking you to come with me, not to commiserate with our ancestors, but to find hope through them. Because a similar moment 2,000 years ago will give us a message that we need right now, and it will come with a powerful symbol that was always intended to remind us of something important. So Jesus and his friends, they find themselves one day surrounded by people. That was not unusual. There were always crowds around Jesus. But on this particular day, they were outside of the city, and they were away from markets, and they were kind of in a remote place. So they were surrounded by people. That wasn't unusual, but there was no place to eat. That was kind of unusual. So when Jesus looked up and he saw a crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Philip was one of his followers, his disciples, where, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Jesus asked this only to test Philip, or he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, well, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread just for each one of these people to have a single bite. The disciples, Jesus' closest followers, they were, they were not unlike you and me. They were practical, they were logical, they were pragmatic types who tried to lead based on what they could see. 
And isn't that exactly what you and I are doing right now? And we, we, we've got our eyes glued to the news. We're watching governors and mayors and doctors and the president tell us what to do today and what not to do tomorrow. It's a constant barrage of information based on what we know and our best guess and what we can see and what little we understand. And I'm, I'm not arguing we shouldn't take it seriously. Of course we should take this seriously. People are getting sick. People are dying. And we ought to be smart. But I think God wants us also to know that there is more than just the 24-7 news cycle. There's something more powerful than what we can see with our eyes. And I'm not talking about a microscopic virus. I'm talking about a cosmic power that knows what we don't know and sees what we can't see. And that's what this scripture is about today. See, Jesus knew that our temptation was a limitation based on information, and he wanted us to use this massive, hungry crowd moment to teach us all how to live at a higher level, maybe exactly in this moment. So Jesus took the loaves, and he gave thanks, and he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. Now, maybe you've heard this story before. Maybe you've even heard me teach on it before. It's, it's uh, several places in the Bible, and it's often referred to as the feeding of the 5,000. And the gist of it goes like this. There were these thousands of people that were standing outside to be near Jesus. It was more than 5,000. They only counted the men then. And I know we don't like that, but it's just the way that was. So there's probably 15,000 or so, maybe even more people. And they're all hungry, and Jesus finds a little bit of food. And what he gets was five loaves and two fish. And he looks at this small amount of food, this handful of food, and he miraculously multiplies it so that with this little bit of food, everybody gets fed. Not only does everybody get all that they want, but there are leftovers to put in the microwave for the next few days. We do that. I don't know if you do. There's no microwaves in Jesus' day, but there are lots of leftovers, 12 basketfuls to be exact. There are no empty bread aisles that day. Jesus just bakes a store full of food out of thin air. And after Jesus' meal-making miracle, the crowd, satisfied as they are physically, they don't leave. And I think about it like this. You know how in the pre-coronavirus world when we used to actually go to big concerts and you go see your favorite band and at the end they perform their signature song? the one that everybody's been waiting for and they held it to the very end. And then after they're done with that song, they look at the crowd and they say, good night, we love you. And then they walk off and they leave. And what happens next? Does the crowd quietly pack up and head to their car? Of course not. It's a stadium full of fans and they start to chant and the chant begins to rise and there's a long applause and they go crazy and they're screaming and yelling and all the fans begin to shout with one voice, you know, more or encore or one more. And they do it until the band gives up and comes back to the platform. They grab their instruments and they play another set. Well, Jesus miraculously feeds these thousands of people. He puts down these basketfuls of food and walks off the platform and the people don't leave. They want more. They want an encore. So they decide to just go to sleep there. They just lay down right on the ground, right where they're standing, and they camp out until the encore happens. But Jesus, he's not interested in entertaining them. So he waits until they're snoring, and then he slips away. Now, you can read about this whole story in John 6, and you should, but the next morning, the crowd wakes up, 
and Jesus is gone. Not only did they not get their encore, but now they've slept all night long. They had dinner with the five loaves and the two fish. It got multiplied. But now it's time for breakfast, and they're hungry again. So they're thinking, Jesus cooked up an army-sized feast last night. Now we'd like him to do it with bacon and eggs, without the bacon. So they start searching. Like a paparazzi mob, they're trying to track Jesus down, and they eventually catch him a good distance away. This is what happens when they, the crowd, found Jesus on the other side of the lake. They asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me. Not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Did you catch that? I mean, I want you to make sure you, you hear this. Jesus is actually calling these people out. He names it. He's saying, you people, you were looking for me, not because you're interested in following me, not because you're want, wanting to learn from me, not because you want to change your life through me. You wanted to find me because of what I could give you. In this case, it was a hot meal. Those people who were physically following Jesus around were only doing that because of whatever he could do for them. As long as they could get what they wanted, they looked loyal. But they weren't loyal. It was really self-serving. What these words of Jesus right here, what they should have prompted, what they should prompt in us is a soul-level check-in. We ought to be asking a question like, do I follow Jesus like I serve him? Like my life depends on him? Or do I follow Jesus as long as, as long as he serves me? We'll come back to that, but Jesus isn't finished yet. In verse 32, he makes a startling turn that ends in a shocking statement. So he says to them, very truly I tell you, this phrase right here, very truly I tell you, it's sort of like saying, this is a fact, or let me tell you the truth. So let me tell you the truth. It's not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, what Jesus is referring to here requires a little bit of explanation, and I just want you to stay with me because this is important. A couple of thousand years earlier, God had miraculously delivered the Israelite people. Israelites, Jews, and Hebrews are all the same group of people. So you'll hear those terms interchangeably. And so God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt where they lived under a brutal oppression for 400 years. And we call this miraculous rescue the Exodus. And you can read about it in the second book of the Bible, which is fittingly titled Exodus. Anyway. After they leave Egypt in the Exodus, they are literally wandering around the desert for a few decades. And deserts aren't particularly known for their lush vegetation and abundant food, so God provides another miracle for them. And here's how it goes. Every night, you can read about this in Exodus, every night, bread literally fell from heaven. It was called manna. And manna was delivered by God every night. It rained bread just enough for every family, every day. So you might remember a thing called the Lord's Prayer that Jesus spoke much later, and when there's a line in the Lord's Prayer that says, give us this day our daily bread. That was a reference to this manna miracle. Bread was a powerful symbol of God's providence and his provision for his people. So manna fell from heaven every night, and Moses was the leader then. So what Jesus 
is saying in this piece of scripture is that bread fell from heaven under Moses' leadership, but it didn't really come from Moses. It was a life-giving gift from God to his people. But then Jesus does something amazing. He swaps the literal bread, the manna from heaven thing, for an even more powerful metaphor. He says, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This sets up, right here, this phrase sets up a really funny moment, and I think we mostly miss it, and Jesus emphasizes, I think when Jesus says this, you know when we read the Bible, we don't have, we don't have a recording, all we have are the words. So we don't know what word he emphasized. I think Jesus emphasized the. I think he said it something like this, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And I think as he says this, he's trying to help them not think of the actual bread anymore, not think of the manna from heaven. He wants them to look at him. He's given a little wink and a half smile. See, the bread of heaven is the bread that God sends to the world. And then they respond like this. Sir, they said, always give us some of this bread. They don't, they totally don't get it. And I think Jesus probably Here's this response, and I think he, I can just see the, you know, sigh. Maybe he rolls his eyes. He's probably thinking, these people, I have to explain everything to them. And so then he does. Then Jesus declared. Now, this is how it's usually read very reverently. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever I think Jesus, we have to put this in context of the conversation. So these, Jesus has just said, hey, the real bread of heaven is the one that God sends from heaven, and that's the life. That is the bread of life. That's the bread of the world for the whole world. They say, hey, I'd like a bite of that. So I think when Jesus responds here, he says, hey, I am the bread. Stop thinking about manna. Stop thinking about the 15,000 people I fed and the bread. I am the bread. I think there's a little frustration here. Whoever comes to me, will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is one of the seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the Bible. I am the bread of life. Just like the people relied on God completely under Moses for the essence of their survival, I am the very survival that you need. That's what Jesus is saying. Just like sustenance fell from heaven every day while people wandered in the wilderness, I am the sustenance that has come from heaven while you are wandering today. And just like there was only one choice for bread when it was delivered by God every day in the desert, there is only one choice for life by God delivered every day now. Jesus makes himself the only thing on the menu. There's no more bread and fish, no more manna, no more buffet, no more leftovers. It's just Jesus. The people could choose Jesus or they could go spiritually hungry. That's it. He's all. He's everything. If you don't have him, you have nothing. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go Hungry, going hungry. I don't function well when I'm hungry. Maybe you're like me, I get grumpy. I can be a little gruff. So if you came to me and said, hey, Brian, I got this food, and if you eat it, 
you will never be hungry again. I'd probably be interested in that, especially if it didn't come with the side effects like weight gain and sugar lows. Ah, we all know a food like that doesn't exist, right? Not physically, but it does exist spiritually. Jesus offers to you and to me a spiritual substance that is absolute nourishment for our soul. It's a satisfaction to the intangible craving that's inside our very being. It's an answer to the mysterious something that we keep chasing but never can quite find. You don't have to search anymore. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And when he said these words, he meant every word. I love to eat. I could describe for you a full table with a Thanksgiving-worthy variety of dishes that we would all enjoy, and I would enjoy telling you about it. But there is only one thing on the menu that will satisfy my soul. And if I could be so bold, the same thing is true for you, whether you know it or not. In fact, this metaphor of Jesus being the bread of life, it's so critical that he will continue to use this metaphor throughout the Bible, throughout his life. And then he gave it as a symbol of life for you and for me. See, Jesus is the only person who ever lived a perfect life. He didn't have to die like the rest of us do. He, he lived with zero sin ever. But he chose to be sacrificed to pick up the tab for our indulgences and our sins, yours and mine. And the fancy phrase that we sometimes use for this is called substitutionary atonement. And it basically means that I deserved the punishment, but somebody else took the punishment. And that somebody else was Jesus. I didn't deserve full life, good life, abundant life, but somebody else provided that for me anyway, and that somebody else was Jesus. So the night before Jesus made this sacrifice of himself, he sat at a table, a dinner table with his closest friends. And he grabbed a piece of bread and he held it up kind of ceremoniously. And I wonder as he held this piece of bread up and all the, around the table, everybody gets quiet. I wonder if his friends thought about the way he held that bread up that day with all those thousands of people and fed them miraculously. I wonder if they thought about this statement that Jesus makes when he says, I am the bread of life. But as Jesus held the bread, knowing the sacrifice he was about to make, he does something remarkable. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Covenant means promise. I am making you a promise. My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And this is Matthew's writing, and then Luke remembers this one other phrase that Jesus adds. He, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And this becomes our symbol. 
This becomes our moment. It's no longer a moment where Jesus just spends with his friends 2,000 years ago, some history thing that we read about. This becomes for us. This is our moment. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he was looking into the future, seeing you and me right now, and hoping that we would remember, not that this is some ritual religious act, but that we would remember Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And if you come to me, you'll never be hungry. And if you come to me and live under my promise, you'll never be thirsty. So listen, we asked you to get ready for this moment. We asked you to get a little bread and a little wine or juice or water or whatever you've got. And we're going to remember this together. So follow my lead. Don't eat the bread yet. And if you don't have any, just grab something. Grab something for you or whoever's with you in front of your device right now. And I don't want you to leave because we're going to have a holy moment, a sacred moment together. We're the church. We're the church that Jesus founded. And we may not be under the same roof, but we still serve the same Savior. And we remember him right now. And Jesus took the bread, he took the cup, and he gave thanks for it. Let's do that right now. Jesus, you made a sacrifice for all of us, the ultimate sacrifice, paying a price that we should have had to pay, then offering us life and purpose. When we come at you right now, we come to you in the midst of all this craziness and this chaos and all this stuff we don't understand and things we can't see. We don't know where it's all going to end. But we trust you. We may not have every answer to what's going to happen next week, but we can have the answer to the longing that's in our soul. Jesus, you are the bread of life. We commit to you the promise that you made to us that whoever comes to you will never be hungry. Whoever lives under your provision will never be thirsty. We give you thanks for this moment together as one family, your church. And we do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. church. Don't leave. Don't log off or shut down or step away. Don't re-engage the rest of the world yet. There will be all day left for that. Don't leave yet. Because right now, we're going to get a chance to have a holy moment together. We're going to get a chance to connect with God. So listen, stick around because you're going to think this is over. It's not. This is our moment to remember again as Jesus taught us to remember, he is the bread of life. Let him fill our souls today. So before we begin again, let's just for a few seconds, let's just be still.